Did you know that the original Final Fantasy creator, Hironobu Sakaguchi, made a spiritual successor to that legendary series called Fantasian for Apple Arcade, and every level in the game is a handmade, physical miniature model. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing, and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. Head to sifter.com.au forward slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today at sifter.com.au forward slash arcade for a one month free trial of Apple Arcade and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. This offer is for new subscribers only $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled. Pixel Sift is proudly supported by the Murdoch University School of Arts and they might have what you're looking for in a creative degree. If you're keen to learn more or have a look, look have a look at the murdoch.edu murdoch.edu.au forward slash arts to find out what they've got on offer. That's murdoch.edu.au forward slash arts or you can search Murdoch University for more information. Murdoch University School of Arts proudly supporting Pixel Sift. Hello and welcome to episode 149 of Pixel Sift, the show dedicated to indie games from around Australia and the world. My name is Mitch, and tonight my co-host joining me is Gianni. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Mitch. How are you going? I'm very well, thank you. And our guest this week is Dan Hines, who is the lead at Sneaky Bastards, who has just put together the systems-driven stealth platformer Wildfire. Hi, Daniel. Hey, guys. How's it going? It's going very, very well, and we're really excited to learn a lot more about your game, Wildfire, and also going to hear a bit of the story of how you got to the point of making this game, because it's been quite yep. a long journey, one we've been following for a while, and we can't wait to share uh, share that with you. Excellent. Sounds good. All right, let's get into it. Australia's best video game podcast. Subscribe to Pixel Sift on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. Now, I guess this evening is Daniel Hines from Sneaky Bastards, uh, who have just released Wildfire, which is a platform game. It has fire in it, but that's not the only element that you'll be dealing with. Daniel, if people haven't come across the game before, how would you sort of describe it uh, for someone who's coming into it fresh? Well, look, our tagline that we love is that it's a a stealth game where everything burns, Uh, but it's a side-scrolling sneak-em-up where you don't have any direct combat, right? So you have control over the elements like fire and water and earth, and you can use them to affect your environment and uh, affect the enemies that you have to uh, get past as obstacles. Um, And you basically turn the world against the aggressors in clever and creative ways. And why was it important to not include direct combat and kind of use the systems of the world uh, as your main way to kind of make your way through levels? Uh, Gamers are optimizers, and if you give them an easiest way to do something, they will do that, uh, even if it's the less fun way. Um, And the more fun way to play this game is to experiment with your abilities and try things out and come up with creative or unexpected solutions to problems. Um, And the kind of standard stealth game, you know, verb set is stuff like knockout and kill. Um, 
and we wanted to highlight the things we were doing differently because otherwise we would just play like every other stealth game. The term systems driven is rarely seen on the back of a box. Um, what, what exactly does that mean for those uninitiated? I'm going to go ahead and say it's never been seen on the back of a box. It's a thing that like game developer nerds say to each other uh, or people who are interested in design. Um, but what it means is it, it's a design philosophy and it's an approach to making a game where you're not trying to individually craft every single situation perfectly. You're basically creating a bunch of objects and you're giving those objects properties. And then you're designing the interactions between those objects based on those properties. Um, So for example, one of the most basic properties we have in our game is temperature. What happens when things heat up? Can this thing heat up? Um, Can this thing pass heat? from itself to a nearby object. And that's how you get the kind of fire propagation system that the whole game is kind of based on. Well, where is, the, I guess, the limit or the line for you in terms of building that system? Because presumably you could build an infinitely complicated simulator of, of the world. And, and where's the line where it becomes a, a simulator versus a game and, and sort of that fun position that you found? How, how did you find that sort of position? So it's funny because a simulator and a simulation are different things. If you're thinking of a simulator, you're trying to very, very accurately represent a niche thing to an insane amount of detail. A simulation is one where you have uh, a code running that affects things outside of your direct influence and may sort of create uh, you know, unexpected interactions. Um, so a simulation is really limited by the technology how much can you have running how many of these properties are you tracking at once this is all stuff that we kind of found the limits of as we were making the game um but it's also limited by how much time do you have because you're right you could kind of go endlessly but you get to a point where you have things interacting and players don't know why and when you get to that point you have to either communicate them better or think maybe we need to pull back and just kind of create something that's more readable. Because when it's readable, you can see the simulation running and you understand why the thing you did had an effect on other things in the simulation. One of the games that I think that does this really well, and I know it's something you've had a lot of time on as well, is a game like Breath of the Wild, where they've built in a lot of these systems and the ways that you can sort of puzzle out how any of these interactions would work. How do you sort of tell that story to players in a way uh, so that they are aware of exactly, exactly how this system is going to work and then, then can use that as a, a platform to jump on? How do you communicate that to them? You need to iterate a lot on your visual language that you have um, in the game. So I can touch on both ours and Breath of the Wild, for example. In ours, um, you interact with the world by drawing an element into your hands. So you take fire out of a campfire into your hands as a fireball. You can then throw that fireball somewhere else to have an effect. Um, and one of the things we had, we didn't have at the start, but we added later, is um, a kind of predictive drawing of what would happen at the end of your throw arc. So, for example, if you're aiming at a bush, we throw, a, we show a little white flame icon to show, hey, this is going to ignite if you do this. Um, and Breath of the Wild has not so much that kind of communication, but it it's such a colorful world and such a saturated visual palette that what it does is it implies what the effects are just based on how something looks. 
Um, it's also a much more detailed uh, 3D world as well. So they have a lot of different um, effects they can do. I'll give you one of the examples of that. Uh, there are metal objects in Breath of the Wild. Consistently, those will conduct electricity. That's another example of a system, like a consistent uh, property that behaves the same no matter what it's applied to, whether it's a sword or a metal box or whatever. Um, and there is a shader that metal objects use in Breath of the Wild that is the same across those metal objects. So you can visually identify this is metal uh, and not have to try and pass what it is before you interact with it. Was there any systems in there that you had to kind of pair back or cut down on uh, just because it increased the complexity or it just became more difficult to read for players? Or, or did you kind of stick to a sh smaller system set and build from there? So we originally had the four elements, uh, water, earth, fire, and air. Um, we cut air out of the player abilities because partially we found that the effects of those that we had designed were redundant and could be made into other abilities themselves. Um, one of the interactions with air that didn't end up making it in, that was unique, was if you started a fire, smoke would come up out of that fire. And with air, you could blow that smoke towards an enemy to eventually choke them out and make them fall unconscious. Um, but we had to cut that because the amount of collision and, and calculations that you had to do for each smoke particle was just too much. Um, and it's an example of you know a system reaching a technical limit and us having to kind of come back from that. Were there parts of it that sort of surprised you in the way that you had built the system uh, that you sort of interacted in ways you didn't think it could? A lot of the stuff that surprised me um, was the way the guards talk. We have lines of dialogue for them that are pretty standard for most stealth games, like suspicious um, or alert, uh, losing sight of the player. Um, but we also, we've added this kind of panic state. Uh, because the guards are afraid of fire, and that's kind of one of your main tools for getting through the game. And the guards will say different things based on the thing that has made them panic. So they will specifically say, the grass is on fire, or the vines are on fire, or the bridge is on fire, and then run away. Um, but we added a general uh, panic state that was caused by something that wasn't an element. Um and one of the things that can happen is we have archers in the game. If the archer will try not to hit an enemy, like if it calculates that one of its comrades is in the line of fire, it won't fire. But you can kind of trick it and jump and then duck under the arrow. And it will potentially hit another enemy. The archer will see that they have hit the enemy and that enemy has become a corpse. And they are afraid of corpses. So this one archer did that, hit the corpse, and then scream panicked the line, I'm not going back to jail, and ran away. So what was behind that was we have these villagers in the game that are friendly and you need to rescue. Um, but they start chained up with like wooden chains. So you have to burn their restraints and then carry them to the exit. Um, and villagers, if their chains have been burnt are considered free game by the enemies. Like, the enemies will attack them. And if a villager sees an enemy is coming to attack them, they will say the line, I'm not going back to jail, and try and get away. I've been playing, actually, a little bit of wild Wildfire uh, during the week, and I uh, played some today. And uh, I've noticed that uh, even though it says stealth, 
um, in the description, it definitely doesn't feel like a stealth game. It feels a lot like an action game. Um, was that intentional to like kind of disguise the stealthiness behind some pretty solid action? I want you to elaborate on that before I answer that, because what do you mean by action game? It was stealthing around, but it, it kind of didn't it didn't really feel like I need like I needed to. I, I felt like I was still moving around, wasn't really quite waiting for people to go past like in a stealth game. You kind of had a little bit more, you, you kind of had room for a little bit more proactivity. Yeah, the proactivity is definitely intentional, but it is never about directly eliminating the threat, which is the enemies. Um, what you can do is proactively move them around or stun them or interrupt them or kind of affect the way they move or see to allow you opportunities to then exploit. Um, this game is very much inspired by Far Cry 2, which itself isn't also a stealth game. It kind of is also an action game. But really, it's in between. It's a game where you stop and you look at a situation and you think, okay, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, and then you execute. And you have to kind of go bam, 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 bam to take the most advantage of that situation. That's not stealthy, or that's not traditionally how stealth games feel. So I can understand why you came to that, but you do always reset back to a stealth state before you stop and plan and execute the next thing you're trying to do. Um, so you've mentioned Far Cry. Um, we've talked about Breath of the Wild. Um, what are some of the other influences uh, behind Wildfire? Uh, Abe's Odyssey, um, the original Oddworld game, was definitely a huge one. Um, we actually started developing the game with grid-based movement. Um, and if you're not familiar with that, it's uh, a system where if you tap to the right once your character will take one con concrete step um as like a, a set unit um and those games are definitely much more puzzle based uh and we found that people wanted to be kind of a bit more fast and fluid uh and it definitely suited the kind of elemental power interactions more but still with abe's odyssey there is this um powerlessness that you have as abe in that game you never have direct weapons but you do have creative ways to um circumnavigate the enemies that are around you or kind of cause them to meet their own demise which was definitely a, a strong point as well yeah i've seen you talk in the past about the games like uh, the dishonored series as well and that seems to be one where you know you are basically given i like to think about like a deck of cards and you can kind of play the cards however you'd like um what do you think really makes a game like that really connect to players and what were you trying to capture it really connects when something unexpected happens, but you can read exactly why it happened and you feel like, oh, I caused that. And suddenly you realize, oh, this is possible. And the potential for what you can do in the game expands, right? Like you're, you have a hard tool set, which is these are your abilities. And you also have a soft tool set, which is the resulting interactions between how you interact with the world we don't explicitly reveal any of those soft interactions. We want the player to discover them. And when they do, they have a little light bulb moment because they're like, oh, this works like this. I can now take that into account and add that into my stop and plan and execute um, kind of loop. Uh, so now before we get to the next part of the interview, Dan, uh, we just got um, one question uh, from one of our viewers. Um, Shy has asked, uh, has anyone played the game and used the mechanics in a way that has really surprised you? Oh, yeah, uh, a whole bunch of different ways. Um, there's a bunch of people who, we have one level that's set across a series of rooftops, and you'll see people um, use different abilities to kind of uh, glide or jump across different rooftops. Um, 
in ways that we didn't really intend because it's sort of like fall damage canceling, right? Like you do a cool move right as you're about to fall and then you get somewhere else. And we were like, oh, this was mainly about navigation, but not uh, actually canceling out a consequence of navigation and doing stuff like that. Um, honestly, it's I've been trying to track a lot of them and save clips because they're like my favorite thing to see. But I've got to go through all these Twitch archives and kind of snip out little bits and, and uh, kind of make a cool little compilation or something of them because there's just been too many, you know. <laughs> Dan, you started in the games industry uh, a while ago, and you were on the other side of it. You were a, a reporter. You were kind of working for outlets like GameSpot. Can you tell me, how did you make the transition from working in the games press over to the world of making games yourself? I, I spoke to a lot of game developers, and they told me to, <laughs> is kind of the the, the short of it. Um, uh, I, I received a lot of um, really good advice. Um I would go to interview people and we would just start talking about design in a more abstract sense. Um, and something that really helps having that experience as an editor and uh, a, a journalist is you have this kind of database of ways that games have solved problems that you just know because you've reviewed or, or covered so many. Um, so when you encounter a similar problem in a game that you're making, you sort of immediately have all these options of how have these other games solved it and what can I do or, or can I do something else um, to make our own solution? Was it hard to make that first step though? Uh, it was because uh, I didn't know how to program. I didn't know a single line of code. Like this is our first game um, and I don't ever recommend doing this for anyone else. Like if you're trying to make a career change and this is your first attempt at doing it, don't do that. It's not smart. Um, but what really helped was seeing a lot of the feedback we were getting from even early prototypes, like when things were just squares uh, and moving around on the screen. Um, you could see the the kernel of what the actual concept could be. And that's what really drove all of the different kind of difficulties in learning how to actually make the game as we were making it. You mentioned that a lot of game developers were telling you to make a game, how did they react when you when you finally told them that yes, I'm I'm, I'm making it, I'm doing it? Uh, they backed our Kickstarter, which was really great to see. <laughs> the Kickstarter was quite a while ago. Um, mm. How did you basically pay for you to make this game? Uh, so I had like uh, either full time or part time jobs at the same time. Like we basically made this game uh, in our spare time. Um, I can't speak for the other members of the team as well because they had different situations. But from my perspective, uh, I was still working as like a um, editor and writer at the same time as doing it. Um, up until uh, the kind of last year where we signed with Humble as a publisher um, just to kind of get us over the finish line there. Limbot has asked on the chat, uh, he asks, now that you've done and you've gone through the Kickstarter process, would you go through another Kickstarter if you started another game? That's a good question. Um, probably yes, but we would do it differently. Um, I think that this game took so long from the initial Kickstarter um, that people got pissed off about it, and kind of understandably. Um, I think we would have much more of a concrete, not a finished game, but like a game that had more actual body to it before we went to Kickstarter. Um, but at the same time, 
whether or not we went to Kickstarter would also depend on how successful this game is. So it's it's a hard question to answer because I just don't know. What was it like dealing with people like who have come back to you and said that, look, this, this game is taking too long, you know, their expectations were set at a different level uh, and you kind of had to give them the reality of what it is? How did that feel? Have you ever worked in retail or customer service? <laughs> I have. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> were you able to get people to come along with you or was it just a matter of saying, look, I'm sorry, uh, sir or madam, we, we, I'll give you a refund or, or whatever. How, how, what was that process like? It's a bit of both. Yeah, some people would just be like, hey, I'd like a refund. This is taking too long. Um, I'm not interested anymore. And some were like, hey, that's totally understandable. Like you take the time you need. Uh, we're just happy to see the game when it's done. You talked a little bit there about the the lessons that you kind of learned along the way that you're trying to do things with the Kickstarter differently. But I'm curious what advice you would give uh, to other developers, maybe aspiring ones, if they were thinking about making their first step into to making a game, something that you wished you did right at the beginning that uh, you only learned way too far into the, into the process. Um, I would say don't make a real-time game. Don't make a game that has to calculate everything every frame don't make a systems driven game for that matter as well make something small and make something modular make it even like turn-based or or strategic or, or something like that something where you can really um narrow down and focus on the design aspects of it and not have to deal with the the technical hurdles of getting a game to run smoothly when you have to handle all of the stuff that's updating every single frame um, how does it feel to be at this point now where the game is out and people are playing it uh, and it's 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 finished in, in as much of a way it can, anything can really be finished? I mean, we immediately started working on the first patch, so uh, it feels the same. Um, it's, it's a little surreal, um, but it's also been so exhausting that I haven't really had a chance to stop and enjoy it or appreciate it uh, in a way that I would like. Um, it's definitely... Uh, I don't know. It's it's kind of, it's really the best thing has been just watching YouTube playthroughs and Twitch streams and seeing people have different emotional reactions to it. Um, some people seeing the story in its entirety and really getting what we were doing with it. Um, some people coming up with really crazy solutions to things that we never would have seen before. Um, that stuff is really really gratifying because it shows we made a game that accomplishes the core of what we set out to do, which was make a systems-driven game where you can be creative with a cool set of abilities. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's the, the more that I see people play it, like the more I feel like that it has actually been a real thing. Do you know what I mean? When would this game be done for you? Good question. I don't know. I think if we fix everything or address everything with the first patch that, that we intend to, I think probably then. Um, but it's... It's difficult because when you're, and we've had this working um, in editorial and journalism as well, you're never really quite happy with the thing that you make. You can really only see what's wrong with it. Um, And that's to your own personal detriment. No one else is seeing that. They're enjoying what's in front of them. But what you're seeing is what you didn't get to do or or what you were unable to include that you wanted to. Um, So it's, it's kind of bittersweet, I guess. It's it's a game that I've really appreciated watching the process of doing it. Would you share that process again on Twitter? Was it a valuable thing for you to do, um, iterating out, showing little uh, you know updates uh, on, on Twitter in the way that you did? Uh, 
I think I need to be brutally honest and say that that was a novelty for people because it was my first time doing it. I don't think I could get away with doing that again um, because now that we have made a game, we know what to do. Like I look back and at the kind of six years that it took us to make this and I'm like, now that I know what I'm doing, I could do this in two or three. Um, so I don't think there's really much of a, a value in, in doing that. Partially also because if we did want to do another Kickstarter again, you would want to come out with a much more done thing from nothing. You can't just kind of drip feed this thing again, you know. Are you going to collect that in some way? Do you have a, a drive to kind of put that all together and write that down? Or, or is that sort of not part of this process for you? Oh, I definitely have like a whole archive of like in development clips and, and old builds and that sort of thing. Um, it's not a formal process of, of any sort, but yeah, it's there. Limbot would like to ask, would like to know, uh, would you consider an expansion or DLC for Wildfire? Or will you continue on to the next game or just take a long break? Uh, probably not an expansion or DLC. I think on Steam, those don't really sell well. Um, and for the kind of game that this is, it's not really that appropriate. Um, which is sad because we have a whole bunch of like level ideas and, and mechanics ideas that we didn't get to do um, that probably won't ever get seen um, unless we can figure out something to do with them in a future game. Who knows? Um, but yeah, probably not a DLC. Um, we got a comment from uh, Just a Fat Yeti and... He, and uh... They say, I just want to say that I backed the Kickstarter and followed the game's progress with Dan's Twitter, loving the game, and I just wanted to say thanks. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm so glad you did. Uh, your name is in the credits. <laughs> if you want to find out more about the game, it's available now. You can head to wildfire-game.com and that'll take you straight to the Steam page. Uh, if you want to see some of these, uh, these sort of the stories of the making of the game, I recommend you follow uh, Daniel on Twitter. That's D Hines with E-S at the end, D-H-I-N-D-E-S or sneaky underscore bastards on Twitter. And uh, so that comes to the end of uh, this episode of Pixel Sift. Um, this show is produced by Scott Quigg, Sarah Island, Fiona Bartholomeus, um, myself, um, Adam Christo, uh, Gianni Di Giovanni, and, our ex- and is our executive producer. Um, we wouldn't have been able to make 149 episodes of Pixel Sift if we didn't have the support of Murdoch University. So go and check them out and tell them we sent you. And if, you, and if you're keen to learn more about a great creative degree, head to murdoch.edu.au forward slash arts. That's murdoch.edu.au forward slash arts. And as always, we will be sticking links to everything we talked about in the show notes of our website, www.pixelsift.com.au. You can also come and join us on Discord. We'd love to have you there. That's pixelsift.com.au forward slash Discord, where you can share your creative work. Maybe if you're making a game, you can tell us how you're making it, talk about the topics uh, or any of the games that you're playing or really anything else. That's pixelsift.com.au forward slash Discord. And if you like what we do, can we ask you a favor? Because we need your help to share the show. So tell a friend, subscribe, everyone who you think might like it. And if you start someone's journey into podcasts, because we know that getting started can be a bit tricky, but once you're in, you know you'll love it too much to leave. And that's all for this week. Thank you for joining us and we will catch you next time. Thank <laughs> you.
If you're in the market for a super addictive puzzle game, you have to check out Mini Motorways on Apple Arcade. It's a city planning strategy puzzler with an incredibly satisfying gameplay loop. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. Head to sifter.com.au slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today. That's sifter.com.au slash arcade for a free one-month trial of Apple Arcade and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. New subscribers only, $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled. 